0: If you would take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 21. It was pointed out to me as I left the stage area after the baptism that I referred to Sweet Bella as Bella Andrews, and uh, I think I probably did that, And, and she is Bella Adams. And I would like to blame that on uh, the dentist who writes like a doctor who was filling in the name badges in the back. (laughs) But I think it's just as likely I just misread, right? So mom and dad, I hope I didn't mess up videos. And thank you, sweet Bella, for being so kind and generous. She never corrected. She just, yes, yes. (laughs) And so, again, I hope I didn't mess up anything for moms and dads and grandparents celebrating her precious baptism this morning. Matthew chapter 7. Verses 21 through 29 is going to be our text this morning. If there has ever been a passage that is intended to challenge the church or church folk to examine themselves, to see that they are in the faith, it is the passage that we're going to be studying together this morning, Matthew chapter 7 we're going to begin in verse 21 if you found your way there in your copy of God's word please stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of his holy word. Matthew 7 beginning in verse 21 the Bible says not everyone who says to me Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I'll announce to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you lawbreakers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell. The rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed, and its collapse was great. When Jesus had finished this sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, because he was teaching them like one who had authority, and not like their scribes. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. This last part of the Sermon on the Mount was really begun in last week's text, where Jesus says in verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. For straight is the way that leads to life, and there are few that find it. Jesus is honest about the difficulties and the challenges of going the straight gate, but he reminds us informs us there that at the end of the straight gate is life. But he warns us against going through the broad gate, down the broad way, that may be marked by ease and comfort, but that always ends in destruction. At the end of the broad way, is always destruction. At the end of the straight way is always life. The picture is this. We're at the fork in the road, the crossroads of our life. You're going to go one way or the other on the basis of Jesus' teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus invites us to go the way of life, but immediately after warns us that there are competing voices at the fork in the road, namely false prophets, who would entice us to go the broad way and they're selling their product. They're selling the comfort and the ease that is often experienced on the broad way that leads to life. Sort of reflecting on last week's message, and even in the context of that last statement, that is not to suggest that the broad way is always marked by comfort and ease. It's just that on the broad path, it's the comfort and the ease that get all the press. No one talks about the hardships and the difficulties that that are produced by the comfort and the ease experienced temporarily on the Broadway. But the false prophet is there. And, and he doesn't always have an overtly religious message, right? Sometimes this message can be secular irreligious altogether he's just selling comfort and ease come this way and there are good things to be found there's some degree of satisfaction these fleeting passions these pleasures that won't last but they're here and he sells well he he's pitching well his product he may even be warning against the difficulties that mark the straight way the hardships that invariably come with entering through the narrow gate he's very clever He's very capable. He's very good at what he does. Jesus warns us against listening to the false prophets who would entice us to go the wayward way. Now, there's a social dynamic, as we talked about last week. There aren't many on the narrow path. Maybe the false prophet is even selling the social element of going the broad way. There's a lot of people over here going the broad way. Just a few that find the straight gate. Very effective approach, right? Now he warns us, not just against the false prophets from last week's passage, but in verses 21 through 23, against the danger of false conversion. There is a fate that is worse than dying and perishing in hell. It is to die and perish in hell, having believed all along that you were headed for heaven. Jesus warns us here against those who seem to be altogether unaware about the direction they've chosen for themselves. I've been here in, in this area for almost two years now, if you can believe it, and I'm still very much living by the GPS. I get everywhere, most everywhere I go. My life really is in orbit around this, this facility here. I mean, I go home, I go here. There are very few other places that I go outside of a very tight circle, but from time to time, life in general requires of me that I get outside the circle, and when outside of the circle is necessary, I just punch it in the GPS, and I sort of live by that, right? Right? I'm just a shade directionally challenged, and it's easier than having to put forth the mental effort of thinking about where I'm going and which road I need to be taking. I just punch it in, and I live by the phone, right? And that works beautifully until you hit the wrong button on the phone. Just this past week, had to go somewhere in the city, and punched it in. And I I like to be there prompt, you know, right on time, not a minute early, not a minute late. Don't want to waste any time, which is great as long as you don't hit the wrong button on your GPS. There are times when we're headed in directions that we don't ourselves understand. And there can be danger in that. We can be operating with conviction that we're headed in the right direction. When all along, the context of our passage, we have been barreling toward destruction. Jesus suggests such a difficulty, such a challenge in the passage that we looked at last week, but that's brought home even more forcefully in the passage before us this morning. Look at verse 21. Jesus says here, therefore, rather, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven i think for a moment about a passage that uses very similar language to this only in making a point that's almost the opposite of the point that jesus is making here romans chapter 10 if you're familiar with the romans road that's, that's kind of where we go and we say this is it right And the Apostle Paul says, if we believe in our heart unto righteousness and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we shall be saved. And that explanation of the gospel is concluded by Paul saying this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, what's being described there, and the language is a little mechanical, and I think this is overlooked oftentimes, when he says we believe in our heart unto righteousness and we confess with our mouth unto salvation, he's not talking about this one, two, three kind of process that we're going through. What Paul is pressing on is this reality that confessing Jesus as Lord, saying that Jesus is Lord, is not some kind of incantation that saves us from all our sins. What we say with our mouth must align itself. It must be an accurate reflection of what we sincerely believe in our heart. When we truly believe in our heart, Paul says, unto righteousness, as our confession of Christ's lordship is made, therein is salvation. What he's saying is our our confession must be who we are in our heart of hearts. And when it is, when it is, everyone who confesses in such a manner will be saved of their sin. We make our confession of faith in Christ on the basis of a heart that has been born again, radically changed by the power of the gospel. Now, that's not in conflict with what Jesus says here at all. He says again, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. What Jesus is highlighting there is the very thing the Apostle Paul emphasizes in Romans 10, that when we truly believe, When our hearts have been transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will ourselves, our lives will be transformed by the power of the gospel. I simply refuse to believe, nor does the Bible teach, that a person can be saved from their sins and unaffected by the power of the gospel simultaneously. There is a sickly woman in the Gospels who comes near enough the Lord Jesus Christ to merely touch the hem of his garment, and she feels the power emanating from the body of our Lord, and her life is forever changed. How could we enveloped in the power of the Gospel, saved from our sin, walk away from that experience unaffected in every area of our life? Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, can enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. When you have truly believed, there is a desire, a want to orient our lives around the will of the Father for us. I'm not suggesting for a moment that that means perfection for us in the here and now. Nothing could be further from the truth. But the direction of our life, the trajectory of our life, is one, one that, that moves closer and closer to the heart of God. It's no longer my will that is the driving factor in my life, but the will of the Father who is in heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, can enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. As a relatively new believer, the, the first theological controversy that i was ever introduced to sort of revolved around this topic this even this verse and I, i was not a church kid i had not been enculturated with church stuff didn't know the church lingo none of that really resonated with me at the time and doesn't really so much now but especially then at least now i know how to interpret interpret that But I kept hearing people in testimonies and in conversations say things like this. When I was six, Jesus became my Savior. But when I was 26, Jesus became my Lord. And I I really didn't know what to do with that, right? I didn't didn't know how to process that. And I kept looking, and I, I couldn't find anything in the New Testament that sounded like that. And eventually what I determined was the reason I couldn't find anything in the New Testament that sounded like that is because there's nothing like that in the New Testament. Everywhere Jesus is the Savior of one's life, he is the Lord of one's life. I'm not suggesting a works-based salvation or, again, that we're going to have it all worked out and things are going to be swimming and beautiful and perfect for all of our days. When we are faithless, He is faithful. He saves to the uttermost. He is not bound by my iniquity. He is not frustrated with my sin. He is loving and gentle and kindly toward me in all my foolish ways. He is the Lord and the Savior of my life. There can be no mistake about that. I'm not suggesting any of those things. But what I am saying to you this morning is that there is a want, there is an earnestness, there is the abiding, refining presence of God's Holy Spirit sanctifying us, molding us, making us over, transforming us into the image and the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the direction of the believer's life. Not everyone, Jesus said, who says to me, Lord, Lord, can enter the kingdom but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is the driving, compelling factor in your life? Is it your will or the will of the Father? Now, listen to what Jesus says next. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? notice that these are all activities that would have been uh, practiced by actions that would have been a part of the experience of the religious elite or even what we would refer to as clergy in our day preaching exorcism mighty works or miracles and all in jesus name verse 23 the scripture continues then i will announce to them i never knew you depart from me Ye workers of iniquity. Jesus says there are going to be folks who on the day of judgment present their resume. And they say, look at all of these things that I've performed, the things that I've done in your name. And Jesus' response is not, well done, thy good and faithful servant. But depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Think about Jesus' most immediate audience here. First century Palestine, Israel is dominated, religiously speaking, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two religious groups that are deeply devoted to outward religious practice. No one was more concerned with external religious practice and righteousness than the Pharisees and the Sadducees, both in their own right. They would have been busily about much of the work that Jesus describes in our passage prophesying or preaching, driving out demons and the working of miracles and various other acts of kindness within and around their communities, not so much in Jesus' name, but they would have been active in a way that we often attribute to religious officials or clergy officers in some respect. And yet they knew nothing of the power of the resurrection even in our day there's this sort of erudite clerical sort of class that goes about doing the work described in our passage only in our case they do it in jesus name prophesying or preaching in jesus name driving out demons even in certain instances in jesus name with incantations and expressions that are intended to wow the masses and to open the wallets of their listeners and various other miracles activities and acts of kindness performed most of which are intended not to draw attention to jesus but to draw attention to their ministry and in many cases their 501c3 What I'm driving at here is that the issues that Jesus is describing in our passage are not unique to the first century. They are commonplace in our society. We keep looking around for some active legislation, some movement within the government of our country, some kind of governmental level action that's going to change things in the Western world. And it always begins with the church. In the, in the early history of America, pre-American Revolution, there was the First Great Awakening. And for those that know about the First Great Awakening, what you know is that sermon from Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and many of you studied that in your high school English literature courses. But the sermon that you probably don't know that was just as impactful was a sermon by a man named Gilbert Tennant that was titled, The Peril or the Danger of the Unconverted Ministry. Or, as we would say it in our day, the unconverted minister. And it was commonplace in that days the only, in, in those days. The only difference is it was acknowledged then that a minister of the gospel might be unconverted that a preacher of faith might himself not have faith in the message of the gospel. And in a much more sophisticated way, we have arrived at such a place again. And the pulpits of our land and many within Western civilization are filled by men who know nothing of the power of the resurrection, who have no faith whatsoever in the gospel as it's told in the New Testament. Now, that's not a judgmental statement. That's a statement based in reality. Not long ago, it was in the middle of the pandemic. Brandy and I got away and went to a certain city for a couple of days just to spend some time. We like to do that. We don't do the date night thing so much, but if you can take a couple of days, that's even better. And it's really easy to get a hotel in the middle of a pandemic. Not many places to eat, but you can always find a hotel in a pandemic. You can get flights and you can get hotels, but you can't eat when you get there. And we were riding around this city, and there were all of these beautiful, ornate church buildings, gorgeous buildings, large buildings in this downtown area in a city, city that's plagued by crime and all sorts of problems. And we were really talking about church planning and the power that church planning could have in that downtown area if, if those now virtually vacant buildings could be filled with, with church plants. Gorgeous, gorgeous buildings. And, and, and the fact is, and we finally came to this conclusion, I think it dawned on the both of us at the same time, and we looked at one another and noted, it's been at least 50 years since the true gospel of Jesus Christ were preached in any of these buildings that we've just looked at. They are whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. And in most cases, the dead men's bones left 20 years ago. You, you, you watch the pageantry of inaugural services and various other things that go on in our nation's capital surrounding inaugurations of various offices, specifically president and various other things, to see that for the politics But what always stands out to me are the comings and goings from religious institutions, establishments, or so-called churches. And the thing that always saddens me most is the knowledge that in spite of the fact that those gathered there stand in desperate need of the gospel, that church building may be the most unlikely place they'll ever hear it. The danger of the unconverted ministry is as real today as it has ever been before. Now, that's a certain pet peeve of mine, and we could talk about that for the rest of the day. But my point is, if it's possible for Pharisees and Sadducees, for the clergy of our day, for Puritan ministers in the early days of American history, Who were so immersed in religious fanaticism at certain times, whose lives revolved around religious practice, who gave themselves endlessly to the study of the scripture, if it's possible that they might miss the mark, that they might be among those who in that day say, Lord, Lord, look at our resume, to hear Jesus respond, depart from me, I never knew you. Is it possible? Is it possible? that maybe we could miss the mark as well? Again, brothers and sisters, if there has ever been a passage in the Bible that required of us that we examine ourselves to see that we're in the faith, it is this passage. And we are warring against, we are battling against this Christian subculture in the South, this pseudo-Christian folk religion that sounds a lot like the gospel of the Bible that knows nothing of the power of the resurrection. What I'm saying to you this morning is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only gospel that saves. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as spelled out in the New Testament, is the only gospel that saves. Jesus warns us here. There'll be a separating of the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats on the Day of Judgment the blood of christ and christ alone that we find refuge in look down to verse 24 the bible says here therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock the rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded that house yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock Uh, I grew up around construction, was a part of construction before uh, giving all of my time to ministry. I'm thankful for that on most days. And uh, I, I don't know everything there is to know about construction, but I know this. It doesn't matter what kind of house you build if the foundation is bad. If the house doesn't have the right kind of foundation, regardless of the makeup of the structure itself, it will not stand. What Jesus is saying here is that the wise man builds his house on a gospel foundation. He searches far and wide, and he finds the right kind of ground, the right kind of foundation to establish his house upon. The wise man hears the words of God. The wise man hears the gospel, and he begins to build his house right there where God requires, on the rock that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a second scenario. In verse 26, Jesus says, but everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed, and its collapse was great. You may choose to build your house elsewhere. You may choose to build your house on a different kind of foundation, but when the rains come and the winds blow and the rivers rise, your house will not stand. The only house that stands is the house built on the rock that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Y'all tracking with me this morning? Y'all with me? You want to build your house on gospel ground that can stand in the day of difficulty you'll note that in both instances the winds blow the rivers rise and the rain falls this is just the fact of life you build your house on the rock the winds will blow the rains will fall and the rivers will rise build your house on the sand the winds will blow the rains will fall the rivers will rise it's a shared experience. I wish that I were able to say to you, if you just love Jesus with all of your heart, things will go smoothly for you. You'll have a lot less hard times in life. Now, the reality is that you can create some hard times through some dumb decision-making, but that's not exclusive to those on the broad path. That happens over on the straightway as well. The fact is, we're all going to face the floods of life. But if you'll build your house on gospel ground, when the flood comes, it'll stand. When the flood comes, what you'll find is that that God has hold of you, that God is keeping and protecting. There's a stability that comes with having that kind of a foundation. Flood always comes. The rains always fall. The wind always blows. But the house built on gospel ground always stands. I'll tell you something else. If your house is to withstand the flood of God's wrath that is coming at the end of the age, it better be built on gospel ground. The flood's always, always, always coming. There's a number of examples or ways, directions that we might go with this illustration that Jesus uses here, building our house on the rock versus building on the sand. And I think that's probably why Jesus uses the illustration the way that he, he does. There is a sense in which Jesus is offering the same teaching his brother James offers later in the New Testament where he warns that we be not hearers of the word only, but doers. When, when we meet together this way, we, we don't just do so for fellowship, although that is a nice byproduct of our gathering together worship is our primary focus but not far behind is an interest that we share together at understanding what god desires for us and to build our lives around his expectation the reason we meet week by week the reason the reason that you meet with connect groups is to hear and to be transformed by the teaching of god's word jesus warns us against seeing ourselves in a mirror and then running away quickly, forgetting about what it is that we've seen. You've walked through that passage recently in Connect Group ministry. There is a sense in which, it seems to me at least, that Jesus is warning us against the peril of a delayed response, that we don't hasten as quickly as we ought to answer the call of the gospel on our life. I think about when the Lord was pursuing me, when Jesus was after me, I heard the gospel and understood it plainly. This will sound perhaps like a strange thing, but I heard the gospel. It was clearly preached. I clearly understood it, and I believed everything that the preacher said. But I mean, I was 19 years old, and I was having quite a time. And this is what I thought. I'm 19 now. At least until I'm 25, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing now. Maybe even 30. We'll live out the 20s. And then I'll come back to this teaching. I will embrace it with all of my heart. And I have gamed the system. I'll get the best of this world and the best of the world to come. I, I left a church service with that in my heart. And I, I left with a smirk thinking, I have really got this thing figured out. And God continued to pursue me and to pursue me and to pursue me and eventually broke my ego and my pride and even my body physically. He put me all the way down so that up was the only direction I had to look now i don't know what this does for your system so to speak but if you'll take at face value the teaching of jesus in this passage and countless others specifically john 10 when the good shepherd calls the name of his sheep it would behoove you to come quickly the bible never says tomorrow is the day of salvation but today 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 is the day of salvation it, 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 we've, we've, been, we've been pressing about three points through this whole series of sermons in the Sermon on the Mount. We have become radically different people by the power of the gospel. Citizens of a radically different kingdom with a radically different worldview. And I hope it has landed well in your hearts how different we are to be because of what Jesus has done in our life. And for those of you who maybe are, are new to our teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, or new to our church fellowship, or just new to a church service in general, I want you to know that the Lord Jesus Christ himself, in wrapping up. The Sermon on the Mount is inviting you to believe and to join in with this radical transformation to be a citizen of this radically different kingdom, to see the world, to have your worldview absolutely transformed by the power of the gospel. The gospel is is this. The gospel is this, that God has looked upon us with such love and affection that he sent His only begotten Son, the only one, lots of Jesus is masquerading as the true one, but there's only one begotten Son of God, Jesus, the Christ of the Scripture. God sent His only Son to earth to walk among us, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. In fact, to do for mankind what mankind had failed to do for thousands of years. Jesus comes and fulfills perfectly every commandment of God. So that when Christ dies on the cross, he dies not for his sins, but for my sins and for your sins. There's a great exchange. The just one, Jesus, is given over for the unjust, the us's. Christ died for our sin as our substitute. Jesus died on the cross. Just to say that Jesus died is unsettling to me, except that three days later he rose again. And he met with his disciples to encourage them to admonish them that they go, as we read earlier in the baptism time of our service, that all authority had been given him, and we were to go in that authority to teach, to make disciples, to baptize in Jesus' name. He beckons that all who would, would come. In fact, the first gospel sermon after the resurrection concluded this way. The promise is to you and to your children and your children's children, to as many as the Lord our God would call. Come, come, come. If if you will come away from the things of this world, if you will come away from cultural Christianity, if you will come away from your sin, there is salvation in Jesus Christ. There's a standing invitation for you here this morning. Go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for these moments to spend together reflecting on the promises of this passage and the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. God, I pray that you would be at work and move among us, God, that you would go before and attend the preaching of your word, our efforts at understanding further your word. God, that you would help us, Lord, to see this high calling that you've placed on our life. I pray for those who are here without faith in Jesus. I pray that you would give us together eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to rightly discern the teaching of the gospel. God, I pray that you would save and sanctify, convict, rebuke, and even encourage. And may Christ receive all the praise in Jesus' name, amen.